what I'm trying to do in this series is equip you um, for your engagement with God's Word. And today, we're going to do two things. It's going to be very practical. Um, We're going to look back at the poetic books that we just looked at. The five poetic books, we're going to take a look back and review. And I'm going to give some very, very practical opportunities for you to apply this. Um, people have been making fun of me because I, I, I have a big table with the resources out there. It's not just the counter. I've got an entire round table with resources out there. Um, and, and I want to encourage you, take advantage of those resources. Um, because today's resources, more than just kind of background supplemental material, which there's well over 50 of them on the, on the website, uh, resources. Today's resources, particularly related to the Psalms, are very practical for you to engage yourself with the Psalms. Um, the other thing we're going to do in this message is we're going to look forward to the prophetic literature. We're looking back at the poetic literature. I'm going to review it. We're going to look forward to the prophetic literature because beginning next week, I'm going to be taking these huge books, these, these books, Isaiah 66 chapters, Jeremiah 50 chapters, these huge books, and trying to do one message on, on these huge books. And what I'm going to try to do today is set some of the groundwork for, for that before we get into the details of every book. Okay, so that's what we're doing. We're looking back at poetic books with some very specific applications here in a few moments. Then we're going to look forward to the prophetic books and lay some groundwork and expectations for what you can see and how we can approach those. So the first thing I want to do is some reminders from the wisdom books. Um, The wisdom books are really four. It's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Job. Those are the wisdom books. Poetic books are now going to include the book of Psalms. So I'm going to take the wisdom books first. And then we're going to circle back around to some very practical applications from the book of Psalms. So if I go back to the wisdom books, I want to remind you from the book of Job, there's a whole message on it, that Job is more about sovereignty than suffering. Job lands us on the sovereignty of God. It is about suffering, and there, there's, there's suffering in the book, but the book never answers that question of why is Job suffering. Everybody's debating it. Everybody's wondering why is Job suffering, but you never get an answer in the book. What you get in the book is no matter what is happening, God is sovereign, and we can rest in that. The other thing I want to say is that Job is really kind of an exception to Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says, here's how the world works. The, the world works this way. If you live a good life, you, live, you, you honor the Lord, it's going to be smooth for you. Well, Job is an exception to that. And this really helps us with all the exceptions to Job or all the exceptions to Proverbs. It's not just suffering, but there are a lot of other things that you have to just go, this is how it normally works in God's economy. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. What do I do with that? Rest in the sovereignty of God. That's what Job tells us. Um, The book of Proverbs, I want to remind you that the Proverbs are principles, not promises. Um, These are really foundational principles for how you live your life, but they are not guarantees. Um, If you work hard, you're going to be successful. Not always. Sometimes there are exceptions, but any wise person is going to take heed of that, and they're going to work hard. The Bible's going to tell you, that if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. If you live a violent life, you're probably going to die a violent death. But that's not a guarantee. There are many people who've lived violent lives, lived to an old age, and died peacefully in their bed. But any wise person is going to live by these principles. If you raise a child in the way he should go, 
When he's old, he won't depart from it. That's a good principle. If you're wise, you'll live by that. It's not a guarantee. You may do everything right, and none of us do, but you may do everything right, and your child still may drift off. These are not promises. These are principles, and any wise person is going to live by these principles. The book of Ecclesiastes is realistic, not hopeless. A lot of people feel like the book of Ecclesiastes is hopeless because it just concludes everything is meaningless. There's no hope. No, it's realistic in that you're never going to figure everything out. You're never going to figure out the meaning of all the events that are happening in life. But it is going to give you some very meaningful guidance in the midst of that search that you'll never finally settle. And that is to enjoy your life as a gift from God enjoy the things you can enjoy. You'll never figure it out, so enjoy the good parts. And remember, fear God and keep his commandments. Because one day you'll stand before him and you'll give an account of your life. Remember, you'll stand before him one day and he's going to say, hey, I left you on the earth to make an impact. How did you do? And I think a lot of people are thinking that the answer is going to be really well received when you say, we had a good time. And he's not going to look at you and go, well done, good and faithful servant. You played a lot. What he's going to look at you and say is, did you you love me? Did you invest in others? (laughs) Did you develop and did you represent me well on the earth? When we get into the prophets, I'm going to talk about this more. God does discipline the nation, but at one point God says this to the nation. (laughs) the nation of Israel, his people. You're no longer representing me well, so I'm doing away with you. Um, Are you representing God well? Um, So enjoy your life. But remember, you will give an account before God, so fear him and keep his commandments. Um, The book of Song of Solomon, it really is about a passionate relationship in marriage. Um, it It really is about that, and it's a realistic picture of that. It's a realistic model because it has this attraction between this man and this woman. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing as they are attracted to one another, but it's realistic because they're dealing with their insecurities. Um, and, and I encourage you, don't just look at their insecurities. Understand your spouse's insecurities. Where are they insecure that they're not making an impact? They're not doing enough. Um, they don't fit. Where, where are the insecurities of your spouse? And help them with that. Encourage them with their insecurities. And understand that even though there may be wonderful times when you're attracted, you're, there are going to be misunderstandings. There are going to be times when you have a fight. There's distance. And, and how do you repair that? The book of Song of Solomon is a realistic model, but it's going to have to be applied specifically for you. Okay? I highlighted last week that at one point in the book, <laughs> he calls her a horse. He says, you're, you're a mare among the stallions of, of Pharaoh's chariots. And, and folks, just don't call your wife a horse. But in the context, it makes a lot of sense. In the context, um, what he's saying is you're like a horse, a mare in the middle of Pharaoh's stallions, and you're the one female horse in the middle of the male horses. You drive them crazy. That's a wonderful thing. What is your wonderful thing? Okay. Figure out in your context what your wonderful thing is. Dawn and I have some friends, and their pet names for one another is Buttface Honey. Now, it's endearing to them. It's weird. I get it. it's, it's weird. But they call each other Buttface Honey, and they're just, they just kind of melt. Oh, yeah. I don't know what your specific thing is. I tried to come up with a pet name for Dawn one time. Um, we don't have pet names for each other. We're not that couple. Um, we're not Honey, Babe. Um, that's fine if you are. Good. Horse. Okay, you do whatever you want. 
I, I tried to come up, I called her Schnooker Pugums one time. Just doesn't work. I'm sorry. You can use it if you want. If it works for you, butt face, honey, Schnooker Pugums, horse, you just choose yours, figure out your pet name, but make it work. Understand that this is a realistic model that couples are drawn to one another, but they have insecurities, there's conflicts, and you need to resolve them. The book is really wonderful in that, okay? Reminders for some poetic books. Let me give you some real examples from the Psalms, okay? I want to make this very practical for you. And I got some resources out at the Connection Center that I'm going to give you some instructions on in just a moment. But there are three types of psalms, three major categories of the psalms. There are some other minor categories, wisdom psalms, halal psalms, some minor categories. But the psalms fall into three major groups. The first category of the psalms are called descriptive praise songs. I don't care that you remember the names. Sometimes they're called hymns. But a descriptive praise psalm is a psalm that really focuses on who God is his character, his attributes, and primarily that he's creator and redeemer. Okay, so there's this whole whole orientation. Our God is creator, redeemer. That's who he is. There's another group of psalms. Actually, half of the psalms are called lament psalms. Lament psalms are the psalms that basically say, he's the creator, redeemer, but I don't see how that's working right now. These are the psalms that... Christ quoted on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Out of the depths I cried to you. These are the lament psalms that are really taking a realistic look at life and going, I know that's who he is. I just don't see it now. God seems absent in what I'm looking at. And there's a whole process for what they do. Half of the psalms come to God with that lament. They offer the lament to him and then they They pray. I'm going to show you in just a minute. They pray, they trust, and then they vow to praise. So there's descriptive praise, who God is, laments, I don't see him. And then there's declarative praise, um, sometimes called thanksgivings. Um, The thanksgiving, the declarative praise, is declaring what God has done. It's praising him for his actions, not his attributes, but his actions, how he has delivered you. Maybe it's how he came through when you were lamenting. But it's, it's praising God for what he does. So three categories, who God is, I don't see it, and what he has done for us. I put them in that, that order because it kind of it fits like this. The, the descriptive praises of who God is, those are orienting for us. I know that's who he is and what he does. That's orienting for us. The lament is when I look at life and I'm disoriented. It's like I don't see how that's all working out. And a declarative praise is the reorientation. It's, okay, I know what he's like, but I'm not seeing it. But now he's come through and he's, he's delivered me. He's rescued me. And there's specific things that he has done. So three main categories of the Psalms, descriptive praise, laments, declarative praises. I'm going to give you some examples, and then I'm going to challenge you um, to write your own, Okay. So let me start off, uh, first of all, with a descriptive praise, praising God for who he is, his character. Um, There are many, many, many. I'm choosing a short one, and I want to encourage you, as I give you these outlines of these psalms, the outline is not the same every time. There's a different, the the different outline, it's a different outline, but there's kind of a menu of choices. There's some things you can choose, and you can put them in every order. Like Psalm 22 is a lament, but it's cyclical. It kind of goes through the thing, and you kind of go, he's lamenting, he's praying, God answers. Now he's lamenting again. He's praying, God answers. Now he's lamenting again. It's cyclical. So 
these elements are more like um, <laughs> choices off of a menu. There's a, there's a, a video I just watched the other day. Um, John Christ has a, has a video out that is a video that's making fun of Christian music songs. And, and he, the, the thing is, um, every Christian music video, um, and it's hilarious because he talks about every Christian music video, and he's singing all this. Every Christian music video starts in black and white with rain, you know, and then there's color. Then they show up at church, and there's stained glass, and everything is resolved at the end. He goes through it, and he, he puts the elements of every Christian music song together. Watch it. It's funny. But then, understand, <laughs> the point is, these psalms have elements to them, and you can rearrange them and put them in different orders. I'm going to talk, first of all, about a descriptive praise song. Psalm 100, very short, um, just f- five verses, and it's arranged this way. It has a call to praise and then praises God because he's God, he's creator. And then it praises him because he's good, he's the redeemer. Okay, so there's a call, God is God. There's a, a call, and then God is good. L- listen to it as I just read it, and you'll, you'll hear the outline and the flow. But it's talking about his attributes, what he's like. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. The call to praise. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He's the creator. We're his. We belong to him. Now another call. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. Um, it's praising him for his, his goodness, and his, his hesed is the word that's used in there. Praising God for his relationship, his redeeming relationship with us. Okay, it's just an example, it's just a sample, but it's a short one, easy to get through. It's a call to praise. Praise him, and there's all these, bless him, hallelujah, praise him, um, come before him, enjoy um, shout, all those words are, are in there. And then it says, because he's like this and he's like this. This is a descriptive praise psalm. A classic lament, there, there couldn't be a better lament than Psalm 13. Praising God when life is hard. You don't see God, you're wondering where he is. And Psalm 13 is short, it's manageable. Um, and and here's, here's basically the outline of it. And it has all the elements we need. There's the honesty when you cry out to God. And in the cry out to God, there's often a you, a me, and a they. You, God, are distant. I'm suffering. My enemies are winning. Okay? So when you're crying out, you can frame it in a, God, I don't know what you're doing. You seem like you're my enemy. And I'm all alone here. Then there's a prayer. Consider an answer. And in that prayer, there's a request for God to come through, but then he gives reasons. Here's why I want you to come through. By the way, that would totally change your prayer life if we incorporated reasons for God to answer to our prayers. Because a lot of the things we pray for, we might not continue to pray for them if we say, God, I want you to do this because uh, you probably don't want to do that because that's not a good. But if you can give God a good reason, maybe it would increase your confidence. After the prayer, there's a period of trust. This is, I've trusted in you. And maybe it's, I trust you because of short little descriptive praise, because of who you are. Maybe it's, I trusted you because short little declarative praise, because you came through in the past. But I trust you. That's why I'm praying to you. And then at the end, there's this vow of praise. And the vow of praise may be because God answered the prayer, 
and this is kind of a complete lament where God has answered and now you praise him. I will praise you because you answered. Or it may be a vow of praise to say, I will praise you when you do answer. I do this a lot when I pray for people's healing. I'll pray for people to be healed and I'll say, and Lord, when you do this, we're going to praise your name. It's a vow that I will praise when you come through. And I understand that God is still sovereign, Job, and that his answer to that prayer may be in his timing through giving someone a resurrection body. But I'm going to pray with confidence and vow that I will praise God when he comes through. This is Psalm 13. Let me, let me read Psalm uh, 13 for you, okay? Um, it, 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 it is just such a perfect example of a lament. Listen to all of these elements. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day find sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Do you see the you, the I, and the they? Now here's this prayer. Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes. Reason, or I will sleep the sleep of death. Another reason. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. God, come through so that my enemies don't rejoice, because your name is on this, on, at stake here. Now his trust. But I trust in your unfailing chesed love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. That's his trust. Now his vow. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Um, this is the, the flow, and, it, and it's just such a great example of, of, of what it looks like to lament. God can handle your complaints. Half of the Psalms are them. Take your complaints to the Lord. But only one Psalm is, is kind of just dark the whole way through, okay? Only Psalm 88 is just pure lament. Every other Psalm that's a lament goes through some version of this pattern. I cry out to the Lord, I pray, I confess my trust, I vow my praise. Um, the third category is a declarative praise. This is praising God for what he does, his works, not his attributes, but his works. He's done something, and it may be something he's done in the past. You saved me on the cross. You delivered us out of bondage in Egypt. Um, it may be um, you did something five years ago when when this certain thing happened. You can praise God for things in the past. You can praise him for things in the present. Um, Psalm 18, and there's a lot of them, but Psalm 18 is a great um, example of this. It's very long. The declarative praise songs tend to be longer because they're recounting what has happened. But Psalm 18, if you go through it, there's, there's this introductory uh, praise that is calling people to say, hey, we're going to praise the Lord because of what he's done. Then there's going to be this long narrative of deliverance. And if you'll look, it's like in this psalm, it's verses 4 through 30. It's a long story of how they were in big trouble, they were going under, they were in the depths, the, the battle was raging, and they were, they were losing the battle is what's happening here. They were losing the battle. And then God showed up with a thunderstorm and they won the battle. Um, it's a long report of that. And then it concludes with the praise again at the end. Um, so I'm going to encourage you out at the connection table, and there's a round table out there with all these things. I have some examples of, um, Psalm 100, Psalm 13, Psalm 18. Um, and what I have is the outline on the front, on the back, I've got the text with a few notes, um, on the text, but then out there, there are also some blank sheets 
that give you kind of a template if you wanted to write a descriptive praise. You're just overwhelmed. You're just, you're so delighted in who God is. Well, there's a template for how to write that out. Maybe that's not where you're at. Maybe you feel that disorientation. I don't know where God is. I feel really disoriented. There's a template for a lament to move you through that cry, that prayer, the trust, and the pledge. Or maybe you're in that place where you go, you know what? I know God has done some really amazing things. I saw him do it. And you want to put that into a declarative praise. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know where you're at, but there's an opportunity for you to go get some templates. They're on the website too, for you to engage. And I want to encourage you. I want to implore you. The reason the Psalms are out there is because they're giving us a guide and a pattern for how God's people have walked with him and how they have worked through the orientation, the disorientation, and the reorientation. Make it personal for you. More than anything I've done in this series, I'm trying to equip you to use these tools. And by the way, this is not a once and done. Um, you know, you, <laughs> there are 72 lament psalms. You may have 72 you need to write. Um, there may be a hundred things that you go, I'm going to write a praise to God for these things he has done in my life. And it will give you the toolbox for you to go, now I know why I can trust my God. That's our look back. Getting ready to jump into the prophets. And as we prepare for the prophets, I want to let you know, um, I, I don't think there's hardly anything more appropriate for our culture in the United States today than the message of the prophets. Because the prophets are speaking to affluent people and you may not feel affluent, but on the worldwide scene, you're affluent. Trust me. Affluent people who are comfortable, who are religious, but who aren't committing their entire lives to the Lord. That's the message of the prophets. I'm going to give you some orientation to this um, as a preparation for what we're going to see in all of the, the 17 prophets that are going to follow. All of them fit into all of this, Okay. First of all, the test of the prophets. Um, there are two tests given for prophets. In Deuteronomy 13, if you go to Deuteronomy 13, um, here's what you'll read is the first test of the prophets, and that is, if they lead you away from the Lord, kill them. By the way, I really want you to apply a lot of the things I'm saying, not that one. But the scriptures are still very clear. Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams among, uh, appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, or he says, let us, and, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart, with all your soul. It is your Lord God who you must follow. And him you must revere, keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. If someone prophesies something and it doesn't, uh, and, and, and it comes true, because, you know, people can do that. But if they tell you something that's inconsistent with the word of God, run for your life, okay? In the Old Testament, they were to put them to death, to stone them. If they're leading you astray, absolutely run away. If they do something else, this is Deuteronomy 18. Right at the end of Deuteronomy 18, we get another test. 
You may say to yourselves, how can we know what a, uh, when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet pr- proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Ignore him. If somebody predicts something and it doesn't come true, ignore it. Don't, just don't worry about it. So two tests. If they predict something, it comes true, but they're leading you astray, run for your life. If they predict something and it doesn't come true, just ignore it. And by the way, this was an important principle for all of the prophets we're about ready to study, because what they did is they would predict something that would happen in the near future, in their lifetime. Because if somebody says something's going to happen 600 years in the future, how do you know whether you trust them or not? For all of the prophets, they are prophesying things that something's going to happen in the near future. They may prophesy a drought, and a drought happens. They may prophesy new rain, Elijah, and and rain's going to happen. Um, And because they prophesy that things that happen, and maybe it's just a partial fulfillment, but if they see something that happens in the near future, Daniel does this in Daniel chapter 2. He prophesies something. It happens in his lifetime. So you know that the prophecies that Daniel makes that aren't going to be fulfilled for another 500 years, you can trust them. So a prophet is working by this. By the way, Jesus does this too. Jesus predicts his own resurrection. He predicts his resurrection. So when it happens, now you know all the other predictions he made. He can save you from your sins. He's coming back. He's going to set things right. He's going to judge the world. You can count on that because he predicted a resurrection and it happened. This is something that is is true for all of the prophets. They're going to predict things in their lifetime, portions of it or some section of it is going to happen. So you know all the other things they predict are going to come true as well. So there's two tests for the prophets. Um, There are two types of prophets, okay? There are the non-writing prophets, and Elijah and Elisha are the the, the heroes of the non-writing prophets. We don't have Elijah, first Elijah. They prophesied. We just don't have books by them. They didn't write their stuff out. Then we have the writing prophets, And those are usually divided into the major and the minor. I'm going to divide them a little bit differently. The major prophets are the bigger ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, his book, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those are the the big five, okay? Because they're bigger. And they're major not because they're more important, they're just bigger. And then there's 12 minor prophets. But here I want you to see there's some who wrote and some who didn't write. In the Old Testament, there's about 37 people who are named as prophets. The non-writing prophets are huge. There's a lot of them who don't write. Um, (laughs) I I like some of them. By the way, I preached on Song of Solomon last week. So all of you folks who are going to have a baby here um, in about nine months, because I preached on Song of Solomon last week, um, I got some great names here for you. Me dad, he dad. Come on, give me that. Come on, give me a me dad or a he dad somewhere in there. Um, Bottom right corner, Hulda. Corey, Emily, Hulda. Come on. This is great. There's some great names here, okay? Um, But I want to highlight two things for you. Number one, the pre-monarchial prophets, the prototype is Moses. He's the main guy who's kind of like, these are, the prophets are like this, okay? In the monarchial prophets, when there's a kingdom, Saul, David, Solomon, and all the united kingdom, and then the divided kingdom, um, Elijah and Elisha, but especially Elijah, is the prototypical prophet for those, Okay? I highlight those because on the Mount of Transfiguration, those are the two guys who show up. Peter, James, and John go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is shining like a light, 
and two prophets from the Old Testament appear. You know who they are? Moses and Elijah. It's almost as if they're going, hey, everything we prophesied there before the monarchy, this dude, the shiny guy, he's fulfilling it all. And Elijah says, yeah, and everything we prophesied during all that kingdom stuff, the shiny guy, he fulfills it all. It's, it's no mistake that they're the two guys who show up um, on the Mount of Transfiguration. But these guys are all non-writing prophets. They didn't write anything down. We have some writing prophets, and they fall into three categories, the pre-exilic, the exilic, and the post-exilic. The pre-exilic prophets are those who prophesied before Assyria, main power, came down and took Israel and kind of scattered them around the world. And then later, the Babylonians supplanted the Assyrians, and the Babylonians came down to the southern kingdom of Judah and took them away captive. Those two things are called the exile. There are some prophets, most of them, who prophesied before that exile, and they're prophesying basically saying, it's coming. If you don't straighten up, the exile's coming. Then there are two prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, who prophesied during the exile. Daniel is in the palace, while exactly the same time, Ezekiel is out in the ghetto with all the Jews who are being um, persecuted. And then there are three post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Haggai and Zechariah um, helped Zerubbabel with the construction of the temple. Um, And then Malachi is the very last prophet. He's at the very end. Here's how you can remember that. All you need to remember is Daniel and Ezekiel, because the post-exilic prophets are the last three. Last three, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If you can remember that Daniel and Ezekiel are are exilic prophets, everybody else is pre-exilic. Now, that falls into a couple of different categories, though. The pre-exilic prophets, some of them are going to prophesy to Israel, the northern kingdom, and that's mostly a message of judgment because none of those guys were righteous. Some of those prophets are prophesying about other countries, like Obadiah is prophesying about Edom, a pagan country, but it's to encourage the Israelites that even though Obadiah did not support them, God's going to judge them as well. So it's an encouragement. Then there are the prophets to Judah, the southern kingdom. There's a little more hope for them, but not much. (laughs) And then there's the two exilic prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel, and then the post-exilic prophets. Um, I can arrange these a little bit differently as well. By the way, all of these charts are out there on the Connection Center. Um, When the Assyrians are the dominant culture, um, there's a list of all the prophets who are prophesying during that Assyrian dominance. By the way, some of the prophets, we don't know exactly when they are, so they'll show up in a couple of different places. Then there are some who prophesy during, they watch the Assyrians wipe out the northern kingdom, and then they watch the Babylonians come into power. Then there are those who prophesy during that Babylonian power struggle, and then there are those who are going to prophesy during the Persian time, and that's mostly Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So these fit all into the the powers that that were uh, the world forces at the time. By the way, Egypt is always a world power because whoever's up in the, in the Fertile Crescent in the north, whether it's Assyria, Babylonia, or Persia, they're fighting with Egypt, and the battleground is Israel. That, that's why Israel becomes so important in all of this. Um, I'll say this again and again and again. <laughs> the temperament of the prophets, these guys are outsiders to the community. They're kind of wild men. Uh, they do crazy, dramatic things, and none of them wanted the job. Nobody wants to be a covenant enforcer. 
Um, that's what I'm calling them. They're covenant enforcers. They are interpreting history. This is what God said in the past. This is how it's applying to you in the future, and this is, or you in the present, and this is what's going to happen in the future. And they're preaching more than predicting. Don't look for all of the prophecy stuff first. Look at them as preachers. They are preaching, and they're trying to critique the culture to get the people to grieve over their sin. But then they're going to really try to move the people to say there's still hope because God is gracious. There are messages of grace. You're going to see this next week. Isaiah is 39 messages, 39 chapters of you're sinning, God's going to discipline you. But then there's 27 chapters of there's hope coming. There's hope. And all of that is to get them to grieve over their sin, have hope in God's grace, and lead them to faith and trust God in how they're living their lives. That's their, their temperament. Their message, we've seen this before, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 30, 32. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. Repentance brings restoration. There's not much obedience brings blessing because they're kind of past that. Um, but they are in a lot of disobedience. Will, disobedience brings discipline. And a lot of it sounds like this. God has a wonderful plan for his people. You're just not part of it. But he's not given up on that. He still has a plan. And there will be a people who repent and they will be restored. So there's a theme that comes out in all of these prophets. Again, this is why I think this is so relevant for our culture. Three charges of the prophets through all of them, all 17 prophets are going to hit this again and again and again. Idolatry. You've forsaken the one and only true God, your Redeemer. God's not your only God. You're worshiping materialism, progress, power, You've got something else that's driving you. Ritualism, hypocrisy. Your worship is empty and you're just going through the motions. And then finally, social injustice. Your religion has not impacted your lifestyle. You're not really loving other people. You may say you love God, but you're not taking care of widows and orphans and aliens. In fact, not only you're not taking care of them, you're taking advantage of them. These are the three charges that are going to appear again and again and again. Idolatry, ritualism, and lack of application in your life. So my next steps for you are pretty clear. Write out a psalm. <laughs> I got some guides for you, some examples out there, some blank sheets. You can get them off the, the website. You can go grab them out there. Write a psalm that's appropriate for your current situation. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed. And as we were singing praise songs to God today, as we were singing them, you're just overwhelmed and you're feeling, yeah, I, I'm into that. Go write yourself a, a descriptive praise song. Yeah. Maybe you're not there. Maybe you're here because you're grasping. You're holding on for dear life. Write a lament. Or maybe you've seen God come through recently. You've seen answers to your prayers. Write a declarative praise. And then finally, in preparation for where we're going, consider your life and, and and is there idolatry creeping in? And no, you don't have idols you bow down before, but do you have things that are more important to you than your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and pleasing God? Are you just going through the motions? Were you looking forward to being here today? Are you looking forward to the next two songs we're about ready to sing? Or are you just going through the motions and wondering, ah, I wonder how long the line's going to be at Tzatziki's today? Has your relationship with the Lord really impacted your life? Are you loving others, taking care of others? 
Do you have an other-centered life? Or is your life just self-centered? The Bible's relevant for us, folks. 